So we are part way through our series on the books of the Bible that are known as the wisdom literature. This collection includes Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and a number of Psalms. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that Jonathan preached on Ecclesiastes. It's the pessimistic musings of a teacher of wisdom as he wrestles with difficult theological and philosophical questions and with the futility of human existence apart from God. Well, I have the pleasure of introducing you to the much more optimistic side of wisdom literature, Proverbs. This book was written for a young man to guide him as to how to acquire wisdom and how to avoid the pitfalls of folly in order to live a happy and prosperous life. In Proverbs, we find wisdom to guide us through the delights and demands of everyday living. One of the reasons I'm stood here before you today is that two summers ago, I went to a series of seminars on Proverbs at the Keswick Convention. They were led by a young pastor called Andy Prime, and I can remember sometime after this suggesting to Jonathan that it would be good to study Proverbs here at LBC. I didn't think much more about it until last term when I read an excellent study book on Proverbs that's just been published by the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And now, here I am. So, Jonathan will be doing two further sermons on the book of Proverbs, but I have the privilege and the pleasure of doing the introduction. So, here is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Firstly, what is a proverb? Then we'll look at who wrote the book of Proverbs and when was it written. The purpose of the book of Proverbs, an outline to the book of Proverbs, where does wisdom come from, and finally, the first principle of wisdom. So, what is a proverb? If we think about traditional proverbs and look up the definition, this is the sort of thing we'll come up with. A short expression of popular wisdom. A brief, simple and popular saying or a phrase that expresses a traditionally held truth or piece of advice based on practical experience or common sense. A short sentence drawn from long experience. Now I have spent quite a long time over the last few days looking online at various proverbs and it appears to me that every country and culture has its own proverbs. But what really amazed me is realising how many traditional proverbs are used on a regular basis in our day-to-day language. Literally hundreds. I mean, for example, a fool and his money are soon parted. All that glitters is not gold. Beggars can't be choosers. Better late than never. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Every cloud has a silver lining. It's better to be safe than sorry. It's no use crying over spilt milk. Money doesn't grow on trees. No news is good news. Practice makes perfect. Two wrongs don't make a right. The list goes on and on. But I think my favourite proverbs have to be the modern proverbs. You may not be quite as familiar with these. Actions speak louder than passive-aggressive texts. (laughs) The best things in life are... Streaming on Netflix. (laughs) He who laughs last has the slowest internet connection. (laughs) 
And this one is for Mr. Goswami. The blog is mightier than the sword. If we now think about biblical proverbs, the definition is slightly expanded. A short, pithy, memorable statement, often based on an observation about life, capturing a truth about the way things are meant to work in God's world. And Timothy Keller describes a proverb as a poetic art form that instills wisdom in you as you wrestle with it. Biblical proverbs are designed to encourage us to pause and reflect in order that we see ourselves and the world as God sees it. But a word of warning, proverbs teach wisdom through short points and principles but not are not to be interpreted as prophecy or regarded as laws or promises. Therefore, proverbs need to be handled carefully. They are meant to be memorized and pondered, not to be applied across the board to every situation. I mean, a good example to illustrate this is, many hands make light work. It's a well-known traditional proverb, but it's not a truth that can be applied in every situation, because we all also know that too many cooks spoil the broth. So, let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs 1, Proverbs chapter 1. Yeah, We're going to read the first seven verses, which is the prologue or the introduction to the book. And you'll find this on page 605 of the Church Bibles. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behaviour, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. And let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, when was the book of Proverbs written and who wrote it? The book begins by ascribing the Proverbs to Solomon. Most of the book is closely linked with Solomon, but it's clear if you look at headings used in later chapters that he was not the only author. So most of the book was written about 3,000 years ago, and the task of compiling the book was completed approximately 300 years later. Who was Solomon? He was the son of David and Bathsheba, Israel's third king, and he was described is described in 1 Kings chapter 3 as the world's wisest man. To find out more about Solomon, you'll need to take a look in the first few chapters of 1 Kings. He was probably in his 20s when he became king, and it was an unusual time in Israel's history as the kingdom was united and was characterized by peace and prosperity. It was also a time when wisdom literature was common, popular, and valued. Solomon, like his father David, loved the Lord and committed himself to live according to God's laws. Early in his reign, God personally appeared to Solomon in a dream and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. 
Solomon could ask for anything. Think about it. What an offer. What do you think you would ask God for? Now, Will and I were watching television on Friday night, and in the program we were watching, two of the characters were talking about what they would ask for if they could have one wish. One of them said that she would ask to be able to fly. The other said that he would ask for an extra day between Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) This offer was quite a test of Solomon's heart. Solomon recognised he would never govern rightly with mere worldly wisdom. He knew that in order to be a good leader, he needed spiritual and moral insight from God. So he asked, give your servant a discerning heart to distinguish between right and wrong. And this pleased God, and he immediately promised to give Solomon a wise and discerning heart unlike anyone before or after him. In the next chapter of 1 Kings, you can read that Solomon composed 3,000 proverbs. 800 of these appear in this book. So, what is the purpose of the book? Well, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, tells us why he wrote the book. For gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behaviour, doing what is right and just and fair. And verses 4 to 6 tell us who he wrote the book for. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, and to make the wise even wiser. So, let's look at an outline of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs starts with a prologue. That's the bit we've already read. It gives us the title, an introduction, and the first principle of wisdom. The verses that follow through to the end of chapter 9 are a series of speeches addressed to a young man, encouraging him to pursue wisdom. Chapters 10 to 29 are the collection of proverbial sayings associated with Solomon. And the book of Proverbs finishes with chapters 30 and 31, the sayings of Agar, followed by the sayings of King Lemuel. And the book concludes with an epilogue, a poem honouring the wife of noble character. Chapters 1 to 9 are narrative. They tell a story. They don't contain the short, pithy sayings that we think of as proverbs. We find those in the remaining chapters. But what we read here is the story of a father sitting his son down at home, teaching him about wisdom and foolishness, so that when the son steps out into the big bad world, he will know what wisdom and folly looks like. The father is urging his son, who is just starting out into the adult world, to choose the way of wisdom and shun the ways of folly. In these chapters, he explains that temptation will come to the young man from his peers, who will try to convince him to get ahead in the world by exploiting and oppressing others, rather than by diligent and honest labour. And he also explains that temptation comes from the adulterous woman, who will tempt him to find sexual pleasure outside the bonds and responsibilities of marriage. 
Together, these two temptations illustrate the folly that the young man will face in life and must be prepared to resist. And chapter 10 starts a new section. This is where we find the sayings that we associate with the book of Proverbs. And when you read them, it appears they have been more or less randomly thrown together. A collection of individual statements without much context or organisation. Random, chaotic, just like life. So chapters 1 to 9 give us the tactics to cope with a world that is both chaotic and complicated. They provide the lens through which the later chapters are to be understood. Thank goodness for the time spent at home, for the wisdom taught before entering this chaotic world. We know that temptation does not come to us in a structured or orderly way. Just look at chapter 10. This is the son's entry into the world. There are 32 random statements. They start with the way he relates to his parents, but in verse 2, it moves on to ill-gotten treasures versus righteousness. In verse 4, laziness versus diligence. In verse 9, integrity. Verse 12, hatred. Verse 15, wealth. Verse 17, discipline. And verses 13 and 14 are about the words we speak. The randomness and chaos of these sayings just seems to map the chaotic nature of life. Where does wisdom come from? If we look in chapters 3 and 8, we read that wisdom is rooted right back in creation. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. This wisdom used by God in creating and sustaining the world is the same wisdom that God gives to his people in order to live wisely in this world. Wisdom in Proverbs looks back to creation, but also forward to Christ. Jesus says something in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, that was pretty audacious and controversial. He said to the religious scholars and Pharisees, claiming of himself, wisdom far greater than Solomon is right in front of you. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Christ has become for us wisdom for God, from God. And in Colossians, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, God didn't give wisdom to Solomon for Solomon's sake. God gave Solomon the gift of wisdom for the people of Israel's sake. And we must therefore read Proverbs not only through the lens of a wise king for a foolish people in terms of Solomon, but we must read it through the lens of Jesus. God gives us his wisdom in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the one who makes it possible to walk the path of wisdom in our everyday life. The call to live wisely in God's world is as significant today as it was in Solomon's time. 
but for Christians is focused on the person and the work of Jesus who embodies wisdom in himself. Because it is through him, through his work on the cross, that we are able to live in harmony with God and the world that he created. Thank God for Jesus. Here is a book that stands as a reminder of the availability of wisdom from God for every situation as we make our way through life. And we're reminded in the book of James that if any of us lacks wisdom, we can ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. The last thing I want to talk about is the fear of the Lord. Proverb bases its wisdom solidly on the fear of the Lord. Andy Prime described the fear of the Lord as the beating heart of the whole book. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Proverbs Chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is a key phrase throughout the book of Proverbs. It occurs 18 times. And what is meant here by beginning is, if you don't get, get this, you'll get nothing. You just won't get it. It's like having to learn the alphabet if you want to read or learning numbers if you want to use money. Unless you get the fear of the Lord, you won't get to think in the right way as a believer or to act in the right way as a believer. But what does the fear of the Lord mean? There's a difference between the fear of God and the fear of the Lord. The fear of God is for those who are not in a right relationship with him. This fear is terror. The frightening terror when someone realises that their sin makes them liable to to the judgement of God. The right response by a sinner that has rebelled against God is a terror that makes them want to flee. Sinners ought to be terrified of God. We should be scared of our accountability before a holy God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this is not the fear of the Lord that we find in the book of Proverbs. Here, fear is for those who are in a right relationship with the Lord. When you become a Christian, fear does not disappear. Fear changes. You now have a right fear of God no longer a terror of God. The New Testament writers speak about a fear for believers. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We know what it is to fear the Lord. 
But if it's not a fear of judgment, what is it a fear of? God is referred in proverb God is referred to in Proverbs just over 100 times and most of these times he is referred to as Lord. This is the relational name that the personal God has given to his chosen people. And you can see the difference between God and Lord in the Bible if you look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1 is all about creation, universal in its scope, and God is referred to as God. God said, God created, God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 2, now God is creating humanity, and you'll notice that the name for God changes to Lord, because God is intimately personal with humanity, so close that he breathes the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. The big God of Genesis 1 that you should fear in terror because he is so powerful is now, in Genesis 2, the God that you should fear in awe because of the relationship he has with humanity made in his image. So when sinful people come close to God, they see more of who he is holy as well as loving. So to experience the fear of the Lord is not bad news because it's the sort of fear that leads to a recognition of our sin before a perfect and holy God and therefore our need for a saviour. And understanding this relationship is the beginning of being wise. When we understand we will be in awe, We don't call the shots. We bow down in worship. We deeply respect. We humbly obey. This is the fear of the Lord. Where do I learn to fear the Lord most perfectly? At the cross. Because at the cross, I should have a terror of God because of my sin and an awe of the Lord because of what he has done for me. A fear of the Lord is therefore the beginning of wisdom. If we fear the wrong person, we will act foolishly rather than wisely. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And therefore act foolishly because fools fear the wrong person. God's people are to be God-fearers. Living rightly in the world is rooted in relating rightly to God. I can't live wisely in this creation if I don't fear rightly the God of creation. And that God is my Lord. I'd like to read a quote from the uh, London Institute of Contemporary Christianity's book on Proverbs. We need wisdom. And given our need, it would be all too easy to turn the book of Proverbs into a set of principles for living or a moralistic list of do's and don'ts. In fact, it's a profoundly gospel-shaped book in which God does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. God takes the loving initiative to address our need for wisdom to live well in his world. 
The book puts God at the heart of our lives, not us. Where we can sometimes see ourselves as the centre of our own personal universe, with God somewhere at the periphery, dropping in every now and again when we need him to do so, Proverbs tells us that he is at the centre of all things and that we find true wisdom only in relationship with him and reverence of him. So I'll finish now by leaving you with a couple of things you may want to think about. Does a fear of the Lord shape the decisions that you make? In which areas of your life today do you need God's wisdom? And who, within your sphere of influence, could you guide as to how to acquire wisdom? Wisdom.